Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello dear listeners, I'm your host, Najah, and in this podcast we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we are going to travel the roads of history and discover how art and travel went hand in hand, and especially the way travel from non-Western artists were depicted in visual history. We will try to shift the usual perspective on that topic, and travel down the road of visual representations and examples of cultural exchanges and traveling in a way that tries to center non-Western narratives, artists and craftsmen. We will try to explore and understand how that change in point of view can radically change the way we understand art and cultural history. After all, the ways we think of art history, even in an era where the subjects of decolonization and post-colonial theory are some of the hottest topics of conversation in the air when it concerns history and art and the way we understand and present history. And even that, even in those conversations, there is still a Eurocentrism and Western countries do have to be part of this conversation. And while this is important, I also think it is essential to unpack why we always have to center the Western point of view. And so, as I said, it is important to unpack that if we want to be able to move forward. I am not pretending to be the foremost expert on this subject nor am I offering up a solution to a problem that is way bigger than you and I. (laughs) However, I think it is interesting to reflect on the concept of an art history and history that does not need to involve white people, or at the very least, does not center them at the core of the conversation. And even if you do not live in a Western country, this perspective is difficult to shake off, because white supremacy is something that is so extremely insidious and prevalent in the way knowledge and learning has been set up. After all, one of the main exports of colonialism was the widespread principles and tenets of Western education, which have now been disseminated everywhere. Nonetheless, there were exchanges of culture, art, and languages that simply did not have Western countries' perspectives at their heart and center, and there is a whole wide world that simply exists outside of the Western world, and this feels very simple and obvious. And yet, is it really that simple and obvious? I don't think it always is. 
when it comes to the view of travels and of other people in art, the main source that we have had in terms of visual art, at least when I was studying art and when I was researching this topic, is mostly from a Western perspective. I mean, it is only recently that the shift in the discourse about the quote-unquote discovery of the Americas or the Australian continent has been slowly shifting. After all, how can a land that has been inhabited for thousands of years and be truly discovered? Indigenous people were aware of it. After all, they were living there. The perspective in which we see things is incredibly important. There is no surprise the Orientalist travel arts of the 19th century continues to be the main understanding, in which a lot of non-Western cultures are still seen and most perniciously still see themselves in some ways. It is no mistake that the art canon is the way it is and that the perspective in which it has been constructed is so Western-centric. I have written a small article on this subject, and, well, I say small, I think it was at least 25 pages, but uh, nonetheless, I will link it down in the notes, but long story short, well, there is something to be said about the way history and art history has been constructed, in a way that truly puts Western and once again, you know, Western, Orient, blah, 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 very much huge quotes around these worlds because it is definitely as much as a concept to unpack as, you know, the concept of the East and the Orient. However, it does help to evoke a very specific idea of a Western and white society that exists in the zeitgeist and that we all sort of understand what it represents. Basically, it is all about white supremacy, and there's a way to assert that notion through imperialism and through cultural hegemony. And inventing a listing of works of art that are considered to be the best examples of art and culture, and those works of art being mostly created by white European artists, just says a lot. And so the prevalence of imperialism and the way it shaped our modern world means that there is a certain type of history being told. But when comes the time to open one's eyes and you can see so much in front of you? I think art history is a discipline that has often been told in a very simple and straightforward way. This event happened which led to this and this is the conclusion of these artists meeting and collaborating. And however, history is anything but simple and straightforward, and when you start digging a bit deeper, it gets infinitely more complex and complicated, but also so much more fascinating. My goal is to make you see and understand how wide the world is, how wide history is, and art history and culture and how much more complex it is than it may seem at first sight. I do not know if we will ever be able to comprehend it truly all in its entirety, but we might as well try. (laughs) The world we live in is an interconnected one, 
it is naive to pretend that what happens elsewhere does not concern us, especially in a world as bound by mass communications and media as ours is. However, this is not a new concept nor a new reality. We have always been interconnected and influencing each other, even in the centuries and millenniums past, even though technology has made it so much easier, but people have been going on adventures trying to meet the strange people who lived far beyond and bring back souvenirs. However, despite that, despite all of that, the world is just so much bigger than the very narrow idea of what the world should look like and I think people are better than that and the way cultures interact and share it off can be beautiful and meaningful. The exchanges of trade and of commerce has always been one of the driving forces of sharing art and culture and let's not forget after all that we are so much more alike than we are different and that it is a good thing to be curious and appreciative of other cultures as long as you are respectful and kind. However, it is impossible to deny how these exchanges have now been indissociable from the concept of empire and so cultural exchanges and empire are much more interwoven and intertwined than we think. After all, the world that we see today has been built by the empires and the possibilities for its citizens to go visit and travel into the colonies have been an immense source of forced cultural exchanges and art. And the relationships of imperialism is always something to consider while thinking about art of people traveling to other places. There was a culture of travel art that developed along with the rise of traveling, but most importantly of tourism, which are two slightly different things, as technology also progresses. So traveling often has a more practical purpose. It is simply to get from a certain place to another place, and all the sightseeing and visiting that is made is incidental and not the goal in itself of the trip. However, tourism is an industry, and while that started from the concept of the Grand Tour, a voyage that aristocrats and upper-class European young men, specifically French and British, were leaving on that tour as their coming-of-age moment. They would go to visit a few chosen countries in Europe. They would go drink in the culture, the art, the food, and come back with a new knowledge of the world. The idea of the Grand Tour was to open up the minds of young rich men to classical culture as a sign of status and prestige. And from that idea of the Grand Tour, the concept of tourism got established as the whole corporate enterprise and industry. As time went on, why you would go somewhere purposefully to visit and eat the food and visit notable cultural touchstones. 
And so the fact that more people traveled made it so that the artists were also traveling more, with such tools as portable easels and paints and having those art supplies that were easily portable created an environment where artists could actually draw and paint outside. And creating their whole work of art from sketch to final painting without having to retreat to their indoor studios. The artists who loved traveling were finally taking this opportunity to paint these new sites as they came across them. Artists sketched and painted and represented these new and foreign sites and to capture the experience on canvas. And after all, even if people always traveled, it was never as widely accessible as it is now. And travelers and travel sketch back then were a way of showing the people about all of the wonders and new discoveries one made when one was so far from home. It has to be said nonetheless that even though some artists would actually leave and, and draw from life, a lot of artists would paint and draw from the testimonies of someone describing those new sites to them, which makes it that a lot of this art is somehow based on fantasy and extrapolation rather than reality. For example, I just think that it is the main reason why in the Middle Ages, someone would draw a lion like that. <laughs> they would just hear a vague description and just sort of put something up together. Traveling artists were, of course, not exclusively Western artists, even though a lot of the most well-known are. But there are notable examples of artists such as Hiroshi Yoshida, whose travel art is absolutely marvelous and so lovely to look at. I do think it is important, as he is Japanese, to mention Japanese imperialism, which was at its height during Yoshida's working years, and which places his art in a particular context historically and artistically. This is the same of the Ottoman Empire and the various dynasties and empires through the century, where the nuances of race, power, and sort of shifts and morphs, and so does our current understanding of them. So Hiroshi Yoshida was born in 1876 and died in 1950. And so the bulk of his career was in the late 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century, a time of constant change and a period of transition with endless possibilities, and the opening up of a world that suddenly seemed boundlessly accessible, with the trains and boats that were faster than ever and the start of the plane that was being slowly introduced, it was now easy to go from one place to another and it not having to take literal years out of your life. The culture of travel was incredibly vibrant in Japan as early as the beginning of the 19th century, with a wide interest in visiting landmarks. There are a lot of examples of woodblock prints that show this new engouement and possibilities of individual mobility, and the ease that was now available to the normal person to simply visit cultural monuments, temples, and shrines, just to name a few examples. 
Those woodblot prints are not only beautifully colored and terribly elegant in my opinion, but are a good look into not just the way people enjoyed the travels, but also the way places and architecture looked during that era, becoming thus a historical witness to the past. Those easily made and reproduced works of art were snapshots of Japan as it fell into modernity, such as Picture of the Railway at Shinagawa from the series Mirror of the Pride of the Tokyo Prefecture by Utagawa Hiroshige III. And so Hiroshi Yoshida is an artist whose love and passion of traveling and tourism and visiting New Horizons permeated his art in many ways and took him far, far away from home. He was one of the first contemporary Japanese artists to exhibit and show in Western artistic institutions. Despite the fact that I really want to point out that Western validation is not the end-all, be-all of an artistic career, and that we absolutely don't need it for any kind of legitimacy as an artist. However, in this article, we will focus on a very specific part of his career, the art he created out from his various travels around the world. Before we move on, I just want to mention that he was the son of a former samurai, who then went on to become an elementary school principal, which I find absolutely hysterical as a fact, and so I just really needed to share it. <laughs> and so, he traveled around the world from his own native Japan and created several beautiful pieces from beautiful locations across Japan. And then to Canada, India, Egypt, and the United States. His art really forces you to consider that when looking at cultural exchanges and travels, it really does not have to include white people, and I absolutely love it. The depiction of these travels does not involve a Eurocentric gaze to them the same way the Orientalist paintings of the 19th century will have, for example. Yoshida's woodblood prints are an absolute joy to look at, not only in the way they show the technical skills of this artist, but also in the way they depict these images of travel, of a beautiful and vast world to explore. His prints of the Sphinx, of the ravines of the Grand Canyon, of the beautiful Taj Mahal and the Acropolis in Greece. It is absolutely magnificent, and especially to see those places as they existed in the years he was traveling in. The world we have has never been the closed-off, exclusionary world that some people are trying to sell. That vision of history is a simplistic one, and a blatantly false one as well. First of all, we have to wonder, why is this perspective being presented as one that is the universal truth of history? I think it is true that it's much easier to explain to the normal person in terms of homogenous societies and cultures without going into the complexities of what multiculturalism might have looked like and appeared during the past. 
After all, if you're going to teach history to a group of elementary school kids, there is a limit to how complex you can describe things. So the simplistic way of understanding history is more often than not the norm. But this way of thinking about history in terms of us against them is often misused by groups with the specific agenda. And it helps for a lot of political reasons to be able to simplify history in such a way. But history is always more complex and interesting than we expect it to be. And the way people have been interacting with other cultures can be absolutely fascinating, especially considering what has been exchanged and what has traveled from one culture to another across the length of time. The unilateral vision that this perspective imposes on our history, as well as our understanding of it, is a tool of white supremacy and fascism. Thinking about the diverse world of the past forces you to challenge a world that what you thought was only made of white people, and was seen only by white people. And accept the constant truth of multiculturalism, and that our world has always been an international and global one. People have always been going from one part of the world to another. There has always been constant trade back and forth albeit way more slower than it currently is. It might have taken weeks, months, or even years, but people were leaving and exchanging and trading. Besides, the relationship toward the other used to be very different from the one that currently exists today. I always love to say that the past is a whole other culture and the book The Past is a Foreign Country by David Lowenthal is an entire dedicated study to this relationship that we can have with the past. Even 50 years ago in the same city you live in, where your parents and grandparents might have been living, and it was another culture with different mores, clothing, slams, and codes of behavior. So the further removed from today, the more it is different and unfamiliar to us. And yet I do think it is important to remember that people were always people. The English were well aware of the big white world they were colonizing and exploiting. After all, they prided themselves on it. The colonial British Empire was a source of pride for the crown. Bringing civilization and education to the poor barbarian societies, or something of the sort. I'm very sarcastic, by the way, in case you didn't know it. (laughs) There is always a way to turn things around as to make them palatable for yourself. While I don't think the layman British person in the 18th century had truly any control on the British Empire, there is always a sense that a lot of profit has been gained from the Empire and that is a nasty truth that many do not want to face. After all, the reason the UK is such a rich country today is because of the assets it gained and stole with its empire. And the reasons a lot of countries are poor today is because a lot of their assets have been stolen from them, so you know. And the East India Company is a clear proof of this link between capitalism and imperialism. 
After all, it was a corporation that was holding the interest of the British Empire abroad. But it was also independent from Solon from the British crown. It was a lawless and violent enterprise whose financial interests were based on taking advantage of non-Western countries and people. The Burj, the Anarchy, the East India Company, Corporate Violence and the Pillage of an Empire by William Darrenpol really goes in-depth in the subject specifically and the way they asserted their dominance both through corporate and capitalistic violence as well as physical violence. And it is through that cruelty that they managed to get a foothold in India and in Hong Kong. It is only after the East India Company got too powerful that there were regulations placed on them by the royal crown. But only so that the company was still under the thumb of the royalty. However, they were all but too happy to let them do the dirty words with the colonies at their emissary. As long as they got a part of the pie and that the reach of the British Empire was furthered in the east. International exchanges and commerce has always been happening. But they are also often viewed in the lens of including white people in the conversation and presenting them as the central point of view and the one who sees the other. And today, my angels, we will not be doing this. There is so much to the history that happened in the margins and the empty spaces left by imperialism and the very narrow view of history. After all, Zhen He, a Chinese diplomat, made several travels and visits as far away to Somalia during the early 15th century and established trades and diplomatic relationships between East Africa and East Asia. And still today there are commercial and political relationships between Africa and Asia that are independent of the Western world, as is very normal. The reversal of the gaze in art history is something that will always be extremely powerful because so much of art and our comprehension of art history is from the perspective from which we look at it. There are three components to a work of art. The work of art in itself, the artist, and the last one, the spectator, which is, in my opinion, is maybe the most important one. It is the way we look at a thing that will determine how we interpret that information. And so the reversal of the days becomes essential to commit to a real work of decolonizing the discipline of art history and truly create an art history that becomes more inclusive and truthful. I do love those pieces of art where the subject is about how non-white people interpret and represent white people and sometimes this perspective can be painful. As these works of art are often a consequence of imperialisms, such paintings as Missionary Being Eaten by a Jaguar by Noé Léon in 1907, and the entire body of work of native Canadian artist Trent Monkman, which focuses on the relationship between the indigenous people of the American continent and the white colonizer. The book The Crusades Through Arab Eyes by Lebanese author Amin Malouf is a literary example of this reversal. 
one that subverts the narrative of the historical event that was the Crusades, and the way it has been understood historically. It is a book that shifts the perspective that the story has been told through. And while this does not seem like a revolutionary thing, it kind of is with how silenced and ignored some perspectives has been by the mainstream understanding of history and art history. Taking the time to simply change the point of view does a lot. And I will say, this sort of reversing the perspectives is not something that is new. I am not here to say that people have only started telling their stories in the past 20-50 years. What I'm saying is that it is only recently that people have stopped and listened. After all, the Muslims and the Arabs who were there during the Crusades have always had their own versions of the story and the tales and the events as they experienced them. Looking at history and travels and the ways people moved and lived as perceived by non-Western cultures will give us a better overview of history itself. Of course, all perspectives will always be biased and have their own sets of prejudices and preconceived notions. However, it is better to explore and expand our awareness than to restrict the knowledge and perception of the world. Travel was happening back even in the medieval era. I just want to take a moment to think about the way we frame the medieval era, more often than not as the Dark Ages, and first of all, the notion of itself of the Dark Ages is one that is often being hotly debated by historians. It is important to remember that this notion of Dark Ages is very much narrowed down to Western Europe and excludes Al-Andalus, which was roughly the modern countries of Spain. And so during that era, Ibn Battuta, a Moroccan scholar from Tangiers in the 14th century, traveled across the world and leisurely took his time to get around, firstly from Morocco to Egypt, all the way to Mecca for his pilgrimage or Hajj the Muslim pilgrimage which took pilgrims from their home country all the way to Saudi Arabia, a travel that used to be the travel of a lifetime for some, considering how long it took for people to accomplish it, and depending of course on your starting point. Ibn Battuta traveled from 1325 to 1354 and was one of the most busy travelers of the time from North Africa to the Middle East and the East Coast of Africa, and then to Egypt and India and all the way to China. So that was a trek for sure. His trip, if it can be called this, was a journey that took him more than 20 years to accomplish. After all, let's not forget that this was the world before planes and cars and going anywhere was a huge ordeal. I can only imagine his poor mother receiving a letter every five years like, oh, he's still alive, I guess. <laughs> the Mediterranean and the West Indian seas had a huge role in helping the travels and the exchanges of art and culture before the age of globalization and the modern era of mass communication. 
And so the main way of transportation was either through the roads or the seas. The world has always been a multicultural and cosmopolitan one, where civilizations and people met and collided, where craft and art merged and blended. It was a traveling not only of people, but of ideas, of cultures, of art, of techniques and art styles and of artifacts that were shared and exchanged. And especially as travel and tourism was becoming a commodity that was more accessible to the ordinary person. And even so, though not everyone can travel grandly or have the freedom to do so on a whim, the way people just exist and travel from places to places and discover new sites and new people and enter in contact with the beautiful world that we inhabit, it feels very momentous and yet so very mundane, doesn't it? There are a lot of examples of works of art and artifacts that show the way cultures shared and came together to create something that is unique and quite exceptional. And so the 15th century Timurid Qur'an that was transcribed on Chinese paper from the Ming Dynasty is an extraordinary piece. Once again, a proof of cultural exchanges that were happening long before we had planes and cars. And This work of art, because it is one, has been sold in an auction to a private buyer for the staggering price of more than 7 million British pounds. I spent some time in episode 10 of this current season, so anticipate this. Talking about the way works of art can be priced and valued, so if you want to know more about this particular topic, please wait for it. And so these two distant cultures really brought together the height of art and craftsmanship from both the Islamic arts of calligraphy and decoration and the magnificent paper of Min Dynasty, a paper that was declined in beautiful hues of pinks and blues and purples and with flats of gold and all to create a work of art that is absolutely sublime and showcases the search for beauty and art in everything. I think the point that I want to convey is that of course, it is almost self-evident that history happened and continues to happen between non-Westerns and non-Western countries and societies, and that there is a whole world of sharing and experiences and exchanges that happened without white people being involved in any sort of way. It feels like it should be totally unneeded to be said. And yet in a world where the way history has been written with a specific Eurocentric perspective that was always been centered and included in the narrative, the simple fact of looking at a history that just removes that perspective, that point of view from the equation, feels almost revolutionary in a way. After all, there is a whole wide world outside that is so much more complex than we think. I say this because I know some people might react like, of course, it is obvious. And I agree that it should be obvious, however, the dominant narrative does not. And it is that dominant narrative that I'm looking to deconstruct. 
just in my little corner of the internet with my own little podcast. I have no pretension that I'm going to change the field of history and art history all on my own. However, if I can somehow start a dialogue or make you think about history in a way that is new to you, or make you consider a different perspective to the one we know and use critical thinking and compassion and kindness in your study and understanding of history, then I will have been successful. So many birth story documentaries that want to look at the global history of a certain subject always seem to fall short because when you try to do a complete overview of a whole entire subject, inevitably it will be lacking because there is always more to investigate and there is always more depth to go into and so I think it is better to be precise and narrower. However, these books and documentaries that pretend to be a global history still have the bulk of their content being centered around Europe and North America. And then you have maybe a little 50 pages at the end that are dedicated to the whole of Africa, Asia, and Oceania. And of course, this sort of treatment tends to flatten and simplify cultures and society that are extremely distant and different, and shows implicitly what is valued and what is not. Even within the borders of the country, borders that were often dictated by imperial powers without any thought to the interactions and dynamics between cultures. And even within these borders, the subtlety of dress, of speech, can be drastic. It is easy to conflate the society to a very stereotypical image, and to conflate history into an easily digestible narrative, and to think that things are linear and simple, that progress simply goes forward, and, and yet it is not like that, is it? The way the world works is infinitely more complicated and precious than anything we could fathom. And I think it's absolutely beautiful, and I love learning the ways people of the past created and exchanged and lived, all the ways they were extremely different from us, but also all the ways they were humans, and just like us. And I hope we can continue to deconstruct the paradigm of thoughts built around the way we understand art history. On this, my darling listeners, Thank you again for listening to this new episode of Imaginarium. I hope it was fun and we'll meet again next month for a new episode and a new deep dive into another lesser known subject of art history and visual culture. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash Otherwise, talk about it to anyone you'll think will like it. And as the YouTubers say... Like and subscribe and give us a good rating if you enjoyed. As always, all the relevant images will be on all of our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated and produced by yours truly, Neda. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Chonli Capuchin Uyan, Sam Hurst, Natalie Slager, Jameson Hollybird, Jack, Eminem, 
and Carter J. Tang. Thank you all for the support you give this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon. Thank you.